0: So this Labor Day, we are thankful when we get to labor. And I, I love this video because it encourages us that all we do, we do uh, for the glory of the Lord and in thankfulness that he's given us the ability to work, whether we work to put food on the tables for ourselves, whether we work to care for others who aren't able to care for themselves. Um, we do that for God and for God. We are thankful. Uh, we are in part two of our Love, Walk, Do series, and we are following through Micah 6.8. This is our second. We are, are basically breaking this down into six weeks, and we're going to take two weeks for each statement that is made in Micah's most recognizable, memorable, and, and, and possibly impactful statement that he makes throughout his book. Micah was a minor prophet. Um, If you'll remember, he lived in the time when there was great division in the city or in the nation of Israel. uh, King Solomon has died. The kingdom is now split into a northern and a southern kingdom. Two tribes have established the southern kingdom, which would be called Judah, when you read about that in the Old Testament. Uh, Ten tribes would settle into the northern kingdom, which would be called Israel, would last for 25 years. And then they would be utterly decimated by Assyria, leaving only Judah to be the representatives um, of Israel. And Micah wrote in a time when there was great division in a nation. I'm glad we don't struggle with that in our nation. Micah wrote in a time when there was great abuse by those in power. I'm glad we don't struggle with that in our world today, right? Uh, Micah wrote in a time where there was great uncertainty about where, what was going to happen and where we were going to go. And yet all of these things do we not also struggle with today? And so at this time, there had been kind of this mindset that had swept through the Israelites. And the mindset was that what God really wanted, and there was scriptural evidence for this, what God really wanted was sacrifice. And in other words, uh, what God really wanted from you was for you to do the right things. And the right things were sacrifice. And we read about it beginning with... Um, Noah, when he set up an altar after he disembarked from the ark and he burned a sacrifice uh, just in in penitence and asking for forgiveness and redemption um, from God. And uh, the text tells us that God received it as a fragrant aroma. That same language is used in other parts of the Old Testament and the New, in which Jesus, when he gave his life for us, was a sacrifice whose sacrifice was was a great aroma that was pleasing to the Lord. And so this mindset was you need to do sacrifice. That's what God wants. The thing that God most wants from you is that you follow the rules and that you make sure you follow all the sacrifices. And Micah has this moment where he's like, you have forgotten what this is really all about. And in Micah six 8, I'm going to read, read this from the New Living Translation. Your translation may read a little differently. He says, no, O people. The Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now many of your versions are are instead of saying that you will do rightly or do what is right, that you will do justice, that you will love mercy, and that you will walk humbly with your God. Now we're going out of order. It would be very easy to jump right into doing justice, and we've spent quite a bit of time talking about justice over the last couple of years or so, and, and we're going to talk about justice again in a few weeks. But how does all this wrap up into the idea of doing justice? But we can't really get to the part of doing justice until we understand loving mercy and walking humbly First. So last week we talked about loving mercy and, and, and we talked about just the word of mercy. If we were to look up the, the word for definition in your dictionary, it would say something like this, that mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. In other words, maybe you get pulled over for speeding and they say, I'm going to give you a warning. I'm not going to give you a ticket. So that might be an example of mercy in which they are, they rightly can punish you right here. But they choose not to. That is an, an example of mercy, and that is a, a typical definition of mercy and one in which many people in the world would like to see Christians exhibit mercy in everything. Like, we don't punish anybody ever for anything. We just are loving and caring, and we just you know, we just kind of let people know we just whatever you want to do is fine. And we can't follow Scripture that way, and we can't understand mercy simply in the context of, I could punish you, but I'm going to choose not to. And instead, when we look at the language that is written in the Old Testament, and as we follow that through Scripture, we find that this word mercy is the Hebrew word "hesed," which primarily means faithful covenant love or steadfast love. So, So we don't abandon the definition of I could punish you, but I choose not to. But it's way bigger than that. There's this steadfast covenantal love that is attached. Now I don't want to rehash last week, so if you want to follow that, you can go online and you can either follow the podcast on iTunes or you can watch it on on our website. But some of the things we talked about last week is that God is merciful, and just based on this definition, his love for us is steadfast. God is merciful and his love is steadfast. We also looked heavily at the story of the woman caught in adultery in which uh the the right punishment was that she would be stoned that she would be punished that she would be killed that's what the law called for and yet jesus got down in the dirt and he wrote in the dirt and he said those of you without sin cast the first stone and they walked away all of them did and jesus said where are all your accusers even i am not accusing you but go and sin no more there's a there's a piece of mercy that is available to us when we repent, when someone says they're sorry. It's hard to forgive someone when they don't say they're sorry. It's also hard to forgive someone when they say they're sorry, but they, you know they don't mean that they're sorry, right? Mercy is available to the repentant. It's available for more than just the repentant, though. We'll talk more about that today. But also what we closed out with was that loving mercy, this idea of what Micah is sharing It's not loving a lack of consequence. It's not loving the fact that, hey, I can do what I want, and you can do what you want, and there are no consequences. That is not what loving mercy is. But loving mercy, as we talked about receiving it last week, loving mercy begins with understanding our need for forgiveness, offering repentance so we can receive it. We love the mercy in which God has given us, but that comes at a cost for us. Mercy always has a cost, and we're going to talk about that today as well we recognize our need for forgiveness we offer repentance so we can receive it titus 3 4 and 7 says this about mercy it says when the goodness and loving kindness of god our savior appeared he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness that whole idea that you'll never be good enough You'll never be in a place where you don't need mercy. You'll, you, you, you'll never be you know on top of your spiritual game. You'll never be full enough of the Spirit. You'll never be in a place where I've got it all together enough where you don't need mercy because we are people who fundamentally stumble over righteousness. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We have received his mercy, and that opens for us a relationship with Christ, and it opens for us a future with him and an indwelling Holy Spirit to help us get through that. This is why we read in Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This does not mean there is no consequence. Be very careful how we talk about mercy. There are still consequences for sins. there always are going to be consequences for sins that those consequences do not have to separate us from God or remove us from eternal life. There's an incredible story again, another woman who's caught in sin in which Jesus demonstrates. Not only are we to be a people who receive mercy and we are thankful for the mercy we receive, but we are a people who shows mercy. And what I want you to, to hear in this story is not just what happens, but I want you to understand why a person might be motivated to show mercy to others, because loving mercy has two a 2 twofold, uh, twofold draw to it. One, we receive it, and two, we give it away. So this is Luke chapter 7, verse 36, if you want to... Follow on you version, you can follow on you version. If you want to uh, open your Bible, you can open your Bible. If you just want to listen to me, you can listen to me. It'll also be on the screen. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him, the Pharisee. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, not a title you aspire to, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, so let's let's make sure we get that straight, right off the bat, this is a woman that you would not necessarily bring home to mom for a dinner party. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. Let's not miss this. So here's a sinner. Her reputation precedes her Literally, has your reputation ever preceded you? And I don't mean in a good way. (laughs) Like, have you ever messed up with a group of friends, and then your next gathering with that group of friends, you're like, oh, this is not going to be good. Like, they're mad at me. (laughs) This is not good. Oh, Mark's coming. Some of you may have come from a situation where your reputation preceded you. Maybe your label, above all other labels, is not that this is a person God loves. This is a person that has a place in the kingdom. This is a person in which God is pouring out his love on them. Instead, your label is, like hers, a sinner. And we're good at calling out the sins of others. Not so much our own, but the sins of others, which is what's happening here. I always find it interesting. Every time we look at someone and say, sinner... If we don't consider the sin in our own lives, we have missed the whole point of why Jesus calls out sin in the first place. His desire is not for punishment. His desire is for redemption. But in her mind, and, or in the mind of those that see her walk in the door, what they see in her is just a sinner. But yet, when she hears that Jesus is here, reclining at the table, eating at the Pharisee's house, a place you would not want to go knowing that your reputation precedes you, she is weeping, and she is attending to Jesus. Now, there can't be a better picture of what repentance looks like. A picture who, who looks and says, I know who you are. I know who, what your value is. I, I know what you expect of people. I know I am lacking, and I am broken. I am messed up. I just want to be with you. What a picture of repentance. She's weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a Sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. (laughs) I'm not exactly sure how he said that. And he answered, say it, teacher. Mocking. Because he's just said, you should know who this woman is. You should know you shouldn't be around her. You should not let her even touch you. She is an unclean woman. A woman full of sin. Say it, teacher tells a story. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Do you think Jesus is actually talking about money here? He's not talking about money. Money's not on his mind, but it's on Simon's mind. Because that was an expensive jar that she's anointing his feet with, one that some commentators would tell us his host Simon never did. When you entered into a household for a meal, it was customary for the host or someone in the home to wash your feet as you walk in. They didn't have paved roads, and they didn't uh, you know, have all, some of the luxuries that we have. And so you would wash their feet, and some commentators tell us, well, his feet were never washed. This was the washing of his feet of a worthy guest walking into the home, one thing that Simon himself was unwilling to do because Jesus wasn't even worthy of being accepted as a worthy guest not talking about money in this story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? You know the answer. You've read this story. Who loves him more, the one who's canceled little or the one who's canceled much debt? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. I suppose... Because Simon still doesn't understand what Jesus is getting at. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you her sins, which are many, which is important for us sinners even when Jesus comes to our aid, even when Jesus comes to our side, even when Jesus brings mercy to us, He doesn't pretend we're any better than we actually are. He doesn't pretend she's any better than she actually is. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. I just wonder if Simon's getting the message yet. I don't think so, but it would be nice if he did. For she loved much, but he is who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, where do we see her faith? When was the first time you recognized Jesus was Jesus? And not just an interesting person in a story? When was the first time you realized Jesus was real and not just someone that made a good old ancient tale? When was the first time it occurred to you Jesus was the son of God, not just a good teacher, a good man, or a prophet, but he was the son of God? When did it occur to you that Jesus was somebody, somebody that you wanted to have something to do with? See, her faith was that she knew who Jesus was, even before some of the disciples really knew who Jesus was at this point. And she came and she loved him, and yet what's so interesting is how Jesus frames the discussion and that she has been forgiven much, so she loves much. I want you to hang on to that. I want you to hang on to that. What we know about mercy and what Jesus is teaching partially in this story is that people who know they have received mercy are more more likely to share mercy. Now, it's important that we ourselves are sharing mercy, and and we just talked about this not too long ago when we talked about the Beatitudes, because one of the Beatitudes are that we will be merciful. And if you remember, Beatitude is not the attitude you're supposed to be but yet it's what Jesus told us it looked like to follow him, which means we would show mercy to others. I, some of you may have followed some my trend. I, I, I'm on social media very little right now because uh, there is little mercy on social media. There is much judgment. There is much anger. There is wrath. But there's little mercy we get on and we want to tell people uh how bad their views are, how bad their candidate is, how bad their response to coronavirus is, how wrong they are and 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 social media has always really been this, but it's become more of this, has really become a shame fest. Where where we're not really there to connect and to encourage and to love and to have friendships with people we can't see in front of us, but it's really become somewhat of a shame fest. Would you am I reaching too far do you think? Am I am I being too hard on social media? In which, if you don't agree with me, we don't talk about it. We shame each other. And there's not really like, like as Christians, we like to talk about persecution because we ourselves are the ones who are persecuted. We're the victims. We're the ones that, you know, they're doing wrong to us. But yet, sometimes Christians persecute others. <laughs> and it's not that there's one group that's being persecuted And another group that's doing the persecuting, like, it's, we're equal opportunity. We'll shame anybody if they have a different opinion from us. And yet, what Jesus says is that those who have been forgiven much love much. Is that evident by the activity that we do online? Is that evident by the people that we work with? Not always. I'm not always. People who know they've received mercy are more likely to share it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So what does it look like to show mercy to others? I gave you the example of a of, uh, of, of speeding ticket, but I ran across a story I wanted to share with you, and it's about two men from World War II, Franz Stigler and Charlie Brown. Has anyone ever heard this story? Some of you history buffs may have. Franz Stigler was a fighter pilot in the Nazi Air Force. He was good at his craft. He had uh, done as much as just about anyone um, in his field had done. And following D-Day, their primary goal was to protect the, the fatherland, the homeland, um, from invading B-17 bombers. B-17 bombers would be sent in waves to bomb Germany. And so the fighters would go up, um, and there would be kind of this multi-step process to defend the homeland. And whether it be Germany or whether it be Japan or whether it be Russia or whether it be uh, England uh, or anywhere else, kind of the process was the same. The air raid warnings came on, and the sirens start blaring and then they started shooting shells from the ground. And these shells, their goal was to put as much debris just kind of up in the atmosphere that when the planes would fly through, if the round itself didn't hit it, there was enough just flack in the in atmosphere that it would just destroy the plane. And so this is what he did. And Franz Stigler, he was so good at his craft, there was one particular award that if you shot down, or if you had 30 victories in the air, you received what was called the Knight's Cross And what historians tell us is that at this point and in this day when this encounter happens between Charlie Brown, not the cartoon character, real person, Charlie Brown, bomber pilot, and Franz Stigler, fighter pilot, when this exchange happens, Franz Stigler, this this, this day began with him having 27 air victories. So he needed three more, and then a big raid of bombers coming through would give him a great opportunity to seal the three air victories in which he himself would receive the Knight's Cross. So as these bombers fly in, they're shooting all this flack up into the air. And then as they pass through that, the fighters would engage and they would shoot down their remaining planes. Now, a B- B-17 bomber was a huge plane. It was not just a bomber, like a big floating tug in which you would just drop a bomb and then fly off. They had guns all around it, had it in the front, had it in the back, had them across the sides. Up to 13 guns would be stationed on these B-17 bombers. Now, Charlie Brown took off in his plane called the old pub I you know so I don't know what happened on that plane but they called the the old pub took off it's flying towards Germany in that first wave of that anti-aircraft fire in which all this flak is put up in the air it takes out one of his engines it, it it just damages the plane and it begins to fall behind now if you're either are a buff of War history, or you're a buff of the National Geographic channel, you know what happens when you're in a group and you begin to fall behind. It's not good. So as Charlie Brown's b 17 the old pub begins to fall behind, fighter pilots zero in and begin to take him out. Now, the way these are designed, some of the gunners in these, like I would not want to do this. I think I can't remember. There was an old series. I, it may have been the Twilight Zone, uh, did a story that showed what it looked like to be a tail gunner. You would sit in kind of a bowl at the tail of the plane. You would kind of pack yourself down down in um, into this rotating, turning bowl, and then you would fight and you would shoot at anything that would come from behind, which is the primary way to kill a plane. So as these fighters fly in and they begin shooting at Charlie Brown's plane, they take out the tail gunner. They take out a good portion of the, ha- of the side of the plane, and they shoot off most of his tail. The tail gunner is killed immediately. A bullet ricochets, hits another crewman in the eye. Another bullet flies through the plane, hits Charlie Brown in the shoulder. He's bleeding. His crew is injured. The plane is beginning to, to not respond to commands. And at that elevation, without the shielding of the plane to keep the cold out, Frostbite begins to set in. They begin to lose their ability to concentrate. Charlie, the pilot, begins bleeding out. The plane eventually begins to fall because Charlie Brown passes out. And when he passes out, the plane begins spiraling to the ground. At some point, he wakes up, and he begins to pull the plane back up to a place of flying again. Now, Franz Stigler has seen this. When a plane begins to dive, all of the attacking planes begin to scatter. And this is what their mission was. This is what they were meant to do, shoot down every enemy plane so that they cannot come back and fly another day. As they all scatter watching this kill that they've just confirmed, Charlie Brown pulls up, the plane flies off. But Franz Stigler sees him, and he's right at the verge of winning his Knight's cross. He flies up to intercept the plane, and as he flies up, he can see the tail gunner is dead. He can see half the side of the plane is gone. He can see half the tail is gone. He can see the wounded servicemen in the plane, and he can see the pilot slumped over trying to fly with a bullet in his shoulder. And he made a decision. Now, what decision would you have made in that moment? adrenaline's pumping, you've got a job to do, you're going to get awarded for this, this is why you're here to begin with, we're at war. Yet Franz Stigler had a commanding officer who said, if you, any of you shoot down a parachuting pilot when you land, I will shoot you. Now not everyone ascribed to this kind of moral way of giving grace to those parachuting pilots. But in that moment, he said, This is no different. They're dead. There's nothing they can do. Their guns don't work. They're half dead themselves. The plane is how it's even flying, no one knows. Let me show you that first picture. This is Franz Stigler. What Franz Stigler decides to do. He pulls right up to the plane and begins trying to motion to Charlie Brown, and he's trying to tell him, I want you to veer off, and I'm going I'm to escort you to Sweden. You're going to be arrested, but you'll be okay. They're going to put you in a the hospital. They're going to fix you up. You'll still live. But Charlie Brown's bleeding out. He's half dead. He's just—he—he's already passed out once, and he can't figure out what he's trying to communicate with him. The only thing that's going on in his mind is, I have to get home. I have to get home. And so he just keeps a heading. Back to England. So Franz Stigler could have shot him down, but in that moment, he flies right up next to him. Next picture. Oh, well, that's that's the back of the plane. That's the back of the plane. Go back to that last picture. You can see that's somewhat where the turret, gun turret, would have been down in the tail. And that crew member died. Uh, Go on to the next picture. So this is a depiction, not an actual picture, but this is a depiction of that event in which Franz Stigler comes right up next to the B17 and flies him to the English Channel. When they reach the English Channel, the place where he separates from Europe to England, he flies off, diverts, goes back home, not knowing what fate's going to await him because he let the enemy go. The old pub makes it onto the landing strip. One crew member dies, the tail gunner. All other crew members live. This is an incredible act of mercy for a number of reasons. For one, it was well within his rights to shoot him down. Charlie Brown was in enemy territory. Charlie Brown was trying to bomb Germany. Charlie Brown should have been shot down based on the war. And he didn't. It's a beautiful depiction of what mercy can be, of trying to to save and and just to have grace and compassion on a group of people that were already half dead to begin with. But yet what it also teaches us is another rule, is that when Franz Stigler flew home, he could have been shot, he could have court-martialed, any number of things could have happened to him. It didn't, but in the moment he didn't know that because mercy always costs something. Mercy always costs something. Now, to wrap this story up, Charlie Brown, a number of years later, tries to reach out and find Franz Stigler, and he begins sharing the story on different veteran sites. And eventually, Franz Stigler picks up this pilot's asking around for him, and they connect. Next picture. This is them. Two top pictures are them while they were serving, two bottom pictures when they reconnected almost 50 years later. To which historians Tell us they were fast friends for the next 20 years. It's a beautiful story of mercy, but it does leave us with a few questions about, well, what does this actually mean for us? Why do we show mercy? Romans 15:8 and 9 says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Jesus came to show mercy so that they would glorify God because of his mercy. See, we show mercy for a number of reasons. We show mercy because it's often the right thing to do. We show mercy because we've received mercy. We show mercy because we want to point other people to the mercy which God shows because even though we can withhold punishment from others, God will withhold ultimate punishment from us when we repent and when we follow Christ. But mercy costs us something. Mercy costs you the that feeling of vengeance when you've been wronged. Mercy costs you... Sometimes in the, the the minds of others when they look at you and they look down on you because you offered mercy because that is often seen as weakness. Mercy cost Jesus something because in his mercy for us to be able to be forgiven for our sins, something we would never sacrifice enough for, Jesus gave his life for us. Mercy costs us something when we are able and when punishment is due and yet we will withhold, but we show mercy because we have a greater mission, we have a greater message how do we show mercy well this is one Franz stigler and charlie brown is one example i was a kid my parents showed mercy to me many times which is evidenced by the fact that i'm still breathing (laughs) i there is one event and i've shared it before but there is one event of mercy now just to help you understand, um, in my in my house, punishment was not spared. Often, you did something wrong, you got in trouble. There was punishment, um, and uh, there were several things in which I would get in trouble. And like dad would lower the boom. It was always dad. Mom mom would some, but it was usually dad. I guess it's probably that way in a lot of households. And one time I uh, I stole a lighter from a convenience store, because I was just enamored with lighters. I don't know. I was like eight years old at the time. I stole lighters in my room lighting. That's neat. That's neat. I'm lighting my lighter. This little flame comes up. But but that's not enough. You know, little boys are kind of like firebugs. We've got to see how far it can go. And so I had these pendants on my wall, and and uh, I, you know, I, I remember just saying, what would happen if I light this pendant on fire? So I'm sitting here lighting my lighter. I'm feeling big, and um here like, I have a lighter. And I, so I, I try to light my pendant on fire, but it's like this felt that won't burn. But it does create a smell, enough smell that my mom comes running to see what has happened. And the dreaded words for any 8-year-old that they could hear, I heard from my mother, sit here until your father gets home. That's bad. That's bad. Like, and you gotta wait, and you gotta anticipate what is coming. It's parents. If you need a tip, make them sit and wait. All right. Don't always make the dad do it. I'll just tell you that straight up. Don't always make the dad do it. That's hard on dads. But I sat and wait. I'm gonna tell you that. I won't. I won't go into detail. Um, but I'm so just so, so amazing. I'm still alive after that day. In another event, my dad, who was a a pretty, he was an accomplished physician. He did well, and he he did not uh, spend money much on himself. He gave a lot more away than he spent on himself, which is always one of the things I've always loved about my dad, but he had bought a BMW, his first BMW, and he always wanted a red BMW, so he had it painted red. Uh, if 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 you've ever had a car painted, there's a period of time that the paint has to cure, so it's hard enough to withstand, you know, any debris or you know anything, because it's really soft until that chemical process completes and the paint hardens. And my dad said, now don't touch the car, don't come near the car. The car's parked in the garage because the paint needs to harden, and we don't want to mess up this. Paint job, this car my dad's always wanted and the color he's always wanted and it just paid to have it painted the color he's always wanted. So what does Mark do? Uh, how do you keep a kid away from something like that? So it would have been if my dad had never said anything, car would have been fine. So this was a while back. This was the time when you know you didn't buy single use plastic bottles, instead we bought glass bottles for Coke or Diet Coke or Pepsi or whatever you drank, and then after you used them, you would take them back and you would get a deposit back for whatever you you turned in. And all of these glass uh, containers had these aluminum or metal tops. And so we would leave our empty bottles down in the garage for the next time we went to the grocery store where we would turn in the bottles to get our deposit back. And I took one of the caps off, and I thought, well, how soft is this paint? I don't know why I thought this, but I thought this. So I went back to the trunk, and I just kind of made a little circle. Wow, that really is soft. Ah. Well, I do I do it again? Well, by the time I was done, all over the trunk of the car, I don't know, I was maybe 18 at the time. No, I wasn't 18. But <laughs> can you imagine what my dad wanted to do to me? In that moment, it's amazing I'm still here today, right? Now, my dad has brought me to the edge of death for far less crimes than this. I'll tell you that right now. Do you know what my dad did that day? He sold the car. He sold the car. I didn't understand. I was too young to understand it. I didn't get in trouble. I didn't get grounded. I didn't get a spanking. I got nothing. Like It's like it didn't happen. Dad sold the car. You know what my dad said to me years later? I was an adult and could understand what he had done. He said, I sold the car because I was so angry at you in that moment. And I decided that I should never own anything that would ever make me that angry with you. I'm telling you, like, inch of my life I've been with my dad before. And my dad didn't do a thing. He didn't say a thing. And he sold his prized possession. I don't know what he got for it. It had an interesting pattern in the trunk. But that was mercy. Boy, my dad could have done some stuff to me. I remember that event to this day. I was little. I remember that event today because my dad showed me much mercy. And it is those times of mercy that it reminds us when we ourselves are wronged, we show mercy to others because we ourselves are not in a place to pass judgment because we ourselves are as sinful as everybody else. We show mercy because we are poor in spirit, as the Beatitudes tell us. We are not up on ourselves. We are truly, fully following God. We show mercy because we're sorrowful for the sin that we do, and we recognize that God has forgiven us that sin, and with much forgiveness breathes much love. Mercy for you may look different. One of the lessons we've tried to teach our kids is if you go... If you go to lunch in the cafeteria and someone's sitting by themselves, go sit with them. That's mercy. You don't have to. I mean, you got your friends. They could just just leave them there. I mean, you're not hurting them, but show mercy. Go sit with them. When someone wrongs you, you can show mercy. Mercy can take all kinds of different... and we, we, we ourselves don't have to be negatively impacted. We can drive by someone and we can see someone is hungry on the side of the road and we can give them food because we have mercy on them. Some of you help with a food pantry across the street and you're showing mercy because you don't have to be there. You don't have to spend your time doing that and you have food on your shelves. But you show mercy to someone doesn't. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus, is to show mercy. Now, we don't have time to go too far into this, but this leads us to a problem, and that is, should we always show mercy? So what happens if my parents never held me responsible for the things that I did? I wouldn't be here. and You wouldn't want to have anything to do with me, probably, What would happen if we had no legal system whatsoever? There were no laws. Like it was just a survival of the fittest. Like someone steals something, hey, it's theirs. Possession is 100% of the law. Right? Should we always show mercy? If we spend some time, and and I'm going to give you the easy answer because the hard answer takes a lot more time. But I think you'll get the hard answer with the easy one anyways. Mercy has to always be balanced. Just, God's character is merciful, but God's character is also righteous. God is compassionate and grateful, gr- not grateful, graceful, but God is also just. And while there are times that we can absolutely and should show mercy, there are also times we could, should, and will hold people accountable. How do you know which to do? Do I show mercy in this situation or do do I hold them accountable in this situation? The easy answer is this. You have to have such a relationship with Christ that he says mercy and you show mercy. Hold accountable and you hold accountable with mercy. even though there are sins that we commit that we still have the consequences we have to deal with, you steal something from somebody, you're going to go to jail. But You can be forgiven for that sin and have eternal life with Christ in heaven anyways. So There's always a balance between mercy and justice, doing what is right versus doing what is compassionate. And so I want to encourage you, if we're going to love mercy, It begins just as this woman weeping before Jesus saying, oh, this is Jesus. Jesus himself recognizes what Simon did not, which was she has been forgiven much. look at this repentant woman. And when we ourselves recognize the degree to which we have been forgiven for our sin, then our love for mercy grows. The challenge of leading someone who has sinned to lead them to repentance is not an easy one. And it's one we ourselves cannot convince anyone of. It is only themselves and their relationship with God, listening to the whispering of the Holy Spirit, can lead a person to repentance. If we love mercy, we love the mercy we have received. And if we love mercy, we love to share that mercy with those who are in need of it. We love mercy. We love others by showing mercy to others. Next week we're going to talk about, so what does it look like to walk humbly with our God? We're going to build each time because mercy is a part of walking humbly. Mercy and walking humbly is a part of doing justice. We're going to start talking about that next week. Father, It feels today is a time, there are so many ways we can punish others. We can punish them for who they vote for. We can punish them for whether they wear a mask or not. We can punish them for how they feel about uh, riots and race and government spending. We can punish them for how they look or how much they weigh or the color of their hair. We, there's so many things we can punish people for and people we are being punished regularly. Father, I pray that you would give us a heart of mercy. That when we speak, we speak with mercy. When we act, we act with mercy. I pray that when we are next motivated to come down and tell somebody how wrong they are, we will remember in that moment how wrong we are, and yet you loved us, you saved us, you had mercy on us, that we will show that mercy to others. Father, I pray you would bring to our minds the many sins in which we have committed, not that we would be crushed and not that we are fearing judgment because we are thankful for the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ, but I pray you would bring them to our minds to such a degree that we will remember the great mercy we've received. That will compel us, fuel us to show mercy to others. I pray for those in this room and feel that they are beyond the mercy of anyone. Their their sins are beyond what is is possible to be forgiven. And, Father, I pray that they would experience your compassion and grace right now. I pray we would never look at mercy as as a promise in which we can live however we want without fear of consequence. But Instead, we just cover ourselves with it because you have given us that grace. Father, help us to to be like you in this. Ask us in Jesus' name.